Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Welcome to Space 3D. We had the pleasure of meeting with Lee Grant Irons and his daughter, Morgan Irons, during Season 4 of the Space 3D Podcast. We've invited Lee Grant back this season to continue our discussion. This is Part 1 of our latest interview. Lee Grant Irons is a scientist and engineer with experience in the fields and industries of space plasma and computational physics, nuclear power design and operations, radioactive and hazardous waste management, environmental remediation, and large-scale engineering and construction projects. In this episode, co-hosts Tom Hill and Eleanor Rangers get an update on Morgan Iron's continuing work on soil aggregates and their effects on soil organic carbon sequestration under earth gravity and microgravity. Then we transition to a discussion of Lee's role as executive director of the nonprofit Norfolk Institute, where he is helping to foster funding for various projects focused on the existential challenges of human sustainability on Earth and in space. We will also preview Lee's latest publication on pan-cosmorio theory, which we'll explore in detail in part two of this interview. Welcome everyone to Space 3D. I'm Tom Hill and my co-host today, Eleanor O'Rangers. We will be talking with Lee Irons. We're welcoming, welcoming him back to our show and looking forward to talking and hearing what he's up to. Welcome, Lee. Tom, Eleanor, thank you. All right. Well, I know the last time we had a very interesting discussion, both with you and your daughter, Morgan, about, I don't want to use the term regolith. I want to, it, it's actually like, what is it, bio? What is Bio, the term? Biochar. Biochar. Yes. That was like my favorite term from our last interview. Biochar. Right. right. Well, that's great. How is Morgan doing? She's doing great. Uh, she's she's in the, the last throes of her uh, PhD work, uh, trying to get her thesis completed. Uh, she's just finished uh, analysis of the samples that she sent up to the International Space Station. Uh, and she's done some additional experiments with uh, with some balloon launches as well in order to establish some more controls over the experiments, uh, so she can tell the difference between the various the various things that could be going on in these soils. Because because interestingly enough, it's uh, they're getting results that are unexpected, huh. and and that they don't see in the laboratory when they do centrifuge tests to simulate a rocket launch. Hmm. And and when they're looking at what could the effects of rocket launch on soils that you send up into space, what could those effects be? So it's, it's very interesting. And she's captured the attention of, of researchers who have been working on this. And so they're having some interesting conversations. It'll be interesting to see what comes out of the, the final thesis. So okay, so wait, I want to make sure I understand what yeah. you said there. So the the soil that was launched on a rocket and spent time at the International Space Station acts differently than soil that did not go through the high G environment and just flew on a balloon. Well, she hasn't finished the analysis of of the balloon samples yet. 
So we can't say anything for sure there. Understood. But it it looks like that with a with a rocket launch, you actually have if you have soil that has uh, that's holding water, it goes through the rocket launch. Some of the water actually comes out of being held in the soil due to the force of the launch. Hmm. Right. Okay, it sinks to the bottom of the container for right, right. Yeah. And then you suddenly you make this transaction, this transition from you know five Gs or whatever it is that you're going at, and then you're suddenly into zero Gs. And the problem is that the water doesn't all seem to be uptaken again by the soil. Oh. So you end up getting some separations occurring. And the interesting thing is that in the centrifuge tests, they didn't see that same level of, of separation of the water and the soil in experiments that have been done by some researchers on centrifuge tests. So, huh. so it was an interesting result. And there were some interesting conversations that they had at the recent conference in Baltimore um, between Morgan and these scientists who were like, okay, so you're the first person to send up something in the space. We've all been doing centrifuges. And, uh, and so they had a good, interesting conversation around her poster at the conference. Uh, but um, it'll be interesting to see what comes out of that. Yeah, not, not to mention, hopefully, her selection of postdocs. Right, right. So she's in April. She's been invited to do a, uh, a talk at Purdue with with the uh, space departments there at Purdue um, with the undergraduate and graduate students. So this is something that's interesting about Morgan is that, and it's, and a lot of credit goes to what I would call the popular space community. Uh-huh. So that's community that we're all a part of, right? Uh, the, the National Space Society and the Mars Society and, and space hipsters and, and, you know, all of these groups that kind of like build this cohort of basically citizen scientists, right? And other people who are interested. As a result of that, she actually built, built up quite a network of, of fellow researchers and scientists even before she got into graduate school, mm. uh, which is one of the reasons why they put her straight into her PhD because she had more connections and, and more thoughts on how to advance the research than most people, than, than most postdocs do even. So, so she's actually been doing colloquium around the country for a few years now, like a postdoc and an early PhD researcher would do. Um, so yeah, so she's going to Purdue, which is interesting because Purdue has a solid program there. Yeah. And, uh, and they're interested in seeing the, the kind of work that she's been doing on that that she's been working on. So, uh, so that's coming up. So that's interesting. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see where she ends up in her postdoc. And she's, she's looking at a number of places and, and I'm not going to share too much because we don't want to get, <laughs> we, we don't want to, we don't want to jinx. It yeah. Right. Don't, don't want to get over the skis on that one. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, best, best of luck to her. Um, yeah. That was really a fascinating discussion, but we have another fascinating discussion this evening, and we did want to have you come back so that uh, we could learn a little bit more about the Norfolk Institute and 
some of the work that you're doing there. And we also wanted to talk about another article that you have coming out, co-authored with your daughter, Morgan. So we'll get to that in a bit, but maybe we could talk a little bit about the Norfolk Institute first. Um, sure. You know, we, you know, we're interested in, in knowing a little bit about the, the genesis of it. How did it start? And basically we, we saw on the website several critical problems that you're looking to address. So we'd like to learn a little bit about, uh, you know, maybe some of the research that's been going on under a couple of those or all of those particular mm-hmm. uh, areas of focus. So I'm going to open it up from there. Yeah, sure. So Norfolk Institute came out of a necessity uh, for advancing the science in order to support various business models that are out there to try and 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 move technology and humans forward into space. So as we all know, we've seen lots of lots of businesses start up in in the new space industry. One of those is is the business of my daughter, Deep Space Ecology, which I believe we've talked about with you before. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of good ideas there, but of course the 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 window, the time frame to return on investment is really long, right? And it's hard, it's difficult to get pre-seed and, and seed investors in to those businesses so early, and yet that is so much needed in order to to move things forward unless you know you're already a billionaire right <laughs> so we saw a need to to actually find a way to develop the the pre-market uh science and technology in order to support these kinds of businesses and and so we decided to start up what we call Norfolk Institute. And it's named after after our hometown here in, in Norfolk, Virginia. Of course, we have Langley, NASA Langley, just across the, the James River here. And, and NASA Wallops just two hours up the road on, on the eastern shore of Virginia. So we're in a really good good location from that perspective. And what we do is is we have a model that we call cradle to deployment. And this is where we bring in stakeholders, uh, whether they be government stakeholders, industry stakeholders, both those in industry who would develop and sell technology and, uh, and those industries who would use technology, and the researchers. And we bring them all into a room into a 501c6 kind of situation, which is basically an industry group kind of nonprofit where they can bring their funding to the table and, and, and the researchers can bring their ideas to the table to do this, this early research. And then the, the science that comes out of that, and then eventually the intellectual property that comes out of that can then be utilized by the members of the industry. And it's a way of developing the science and the technology through basically the entire value chain of a given idea and and the entire ecosystem of businesses and interests around that idea take that entire value train and, and bring it to bear together into a into a single nonprofit operating entity where where the resources can be pulled and the ideas can be generated without 
any one company or individual having to take all the risk mm. because these things are, are, are definitely high risk kinds of activities when you're talking about going into space and then trying to invest to do that. And so the early projects that we have going in that model, of course, are mostly focused on the science for now, because that's really where the, where the big needs are. The, the initial project was Morgan's uh, research herself. The initial project was, was the launch of Morgan's experiment up to the International Space Station. And we brought in a number of organizations and companies uh, with various sources of funding and pulled them in together in order to be able to fund that launch up to the International Space Station. Um, and, and now we're, Morgan is, is working with her, her fellow researchers uh, to, to, come, to still come out with the results of that. You know, COVID was kind of happening at that time. And so everything has been delayed. And so that's just, it's, it's, it's not great to have a pandemic occur in the middle of your PhD work, <laughs> especially when it requires you to be in the lab and the lab is shut down. Right. Yeah. So that's why, that's why the analysis is, has been slow coming there. But that was the first project. We've been, we've been working on some other follow-up projects there that, that we're not prepared to share yet, but then we're also uh, working some, Theoretical stuff. One of those theoretical things is this current paper that we're going to talk about today. Yeah. Um, and we're also in conversations uh, with a number of, of graduate schools uh, around the country to set up programs with those graduate schools to utilize the PIs and the graduate students at those locations and, and to support their research where it uh, coincides with with our mission. Um, and of course, anybody can go to the website and look at our mission there. Our mission is to uh, improve the sustainability and the resilience of, of humans, of, of, of humans on earth and in space. So we're looking at both those things. So as a result, we're in conversations with some researchers on some food security uh, problems here on earth. Uh, we're, we're looking at a project uh, in Southeast Alaska right now on, on some food security problems and sustainability problems that they have in Southeast Alaska. Um, you know, a, a lot of the food in that area is shipped in from outside. You, you, start, getting up, you start getting up into the northern climes. And, and so you end up having expensive food that's relatively low quality and, uh, and, and can have supply chain problems. So it's a big it's a big food security challenge, and you can see how that how you can have an analogy to space with that kind of situation. So we, we find that these problems in these remote these these very difficult challenging problems on Earth have have close analogies to space, and that's that's why we see some commonality and like to work on both of those. Yeah, I do have a question. I noticed also on your website about research extension themes, and there were. A mm -hmm. number of those, but one that struck my fancy was life extension. Right. And I'm curious uh, about what, you know, what there is, what type of research that would in entail that, or anything that you may have specific interest in at the Institute. Right. So the, the life extension piece, 
is is getting into uh, not just the the um, the idea of extending life beyond what our current uh, you know telomere capacity is <laughs> in, in our DNA, but it's also you know lengthening the average human lifespan. So you know that again gets back to the average lifespan of humans is is shortening again, and it turns out it's a result of, of infant mortality. So this is getting into elements of, of how we improve the lives of humans all over the planet, wherever they might be, and, and extend that lifespan that way too. So it's, it's both of those things. Um, now it's a placeholder right now. We don't have any active research going on uh, on on that particular element. But when we started up the organization and we were talking with various parties about the elements that could be involved, that was one of them that that, that they saw was important. Yeah, interesting. One of the um, things I love about your uh, institute is that you you focus on economic viability. So many news articles come out saying, you know, such and such discovered, and then you just never hear about it again. And either it couldn't scale or, you know, right. nobody invested in it or whatever. And just the idea of shepherding these things through the steps in between, it's, that just strikes me as very important. Yeah, that, and that's what we saw as important, too. We, we've seen the same thing that you all have seen, right, where you, you hear about this research and like, oh, man, I can't wait till that's, you know, ready for market. And then you never hear about it again, right? And uh, and you're like, I wonder what happened to that. Yeah, it's and it's a big problem. And and then you know, and as a result, you also get scientists. You know, every new cohort of scientists coming up, and they're like, What should I research? And they end up researching the stuff that funding is available for, as opposed to the stuff that they have a vision on, right? And you want people working on stuff that they're excited about because that's where they're going to be most productive. That's where their best ideas are going to come from. And, but scientists end up having to work on stuff for which funding is avail available. And, and I think, I think we're just doing ourselves a great disservice um, by, you know, yeah, it's important to have government, the, the deep pockets to fund the really, you know, a lot of the really, really difficult challenges of contemporary, you know, today's society, you know, cancer um, is a big one, right? Uh, a lot of the, a lot of the health challenges. You need government big pockets to do a lot of that stuff. But there's a lot of things that government is really not going to get into. They're not. So one of the, one of the things that we saw that in our conversations with, with individuals at NASA is, you know, they were interested in what we were doing with deep space ecology and what the research Morgan is doing. And, and they've been, and they've been encouraging Morgan to continue with that effort because frankly, NASA is not funding the development of agriculture and space for anything beyond supplemental dietary concerns. They're only dealing with supplemental they are going to continue to mostly depend upon food that is shipped from earth. And so, and yet the government has a deep pocket. So if you're going to solve that agriculture problem, because we know, and, and we can get that more into that more as we talk about 
the paper we're going to talk about today. But we know anybody that you talk to who's done any amount of thinking on this is fairly confident that we're going to have to figure out how to grow food in space if we're going to be able to live in space. <laughs> yeah. And and NASA just really, they, they, they don't have the resources. They're not focusing their resources trying to establish uh, a capability where the majority of the, of the daily nutritional requirements of the astronauts comes from food grown in space. So, so who's going to solve that if the government isn't going to solve it, right? Well, you know, it's, it's easy for everybody to say, well, Elon and, and, and Jeff will take care of that, right? Because <laughs> they're the billionaires, and so that's where the other deep pockets are. Well, maybe they will, but everything that I've heard Elon say is is focused on, I hope, you know, they're working on agriculture somewhere in, you know, the the operations of, of, of SpaceX. But, you know, if they're not, somebody's got to be working on that problem. And at any rate, um, and we can get this more when we talk in, into more when we talk about the paper today. In order to have a sustainable civilization of humans in space, you are you are going to have to have a space market with a lot of functional diversity. That means you've got to have a lot of businesses out there. You've got to have a lot of shippers. You've got to have a lot of, of conveyors, right? So the shippers are the people that buy the shipping containers and they bundle everybody's shipments into a bulk shipment so that everybody can afford just a little piece of it. Nobody can afford the whole thing. That's why you have a shipper. And the conveyors, the people that make the rockets, right? The, the ones that are going to take your, your shipment and stick it in a rocket and send it somewhere. You've got to have a very diverse market in space, lots of shippers, lots of conveyors, in order to have any kind of sustainability of a human civilization in space. So you can't just depend upon just NASA, just Elon, and just Jeff, you know, to take care of everything for us. Yeah. So, so having more industry involved is important. So again, we get back into the model of the Norfolk Institute. We're looking to build entire value streams. So that's all the stakeholders, all of the businesses, the entire ecosystem of economy for a value stream what it takes to build that entire value stream to get a solution to market. And, and then if you build that and you build it sustainably in an orderly fashion, what you end up having at the end is a product that can be deployed and a supply chain to support it both. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and now you can actually deploy. Yep. So that's the whole idea behind Norfolk Institute. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to join us next time for our discussion on pan-cosmorio theory with Lee Grant Irons. For Tom Hill and Emily Carney, this is Eleanor Rangers for Space 3D.